Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with two of the biggest brains in North America on the rare earth supply chain. We're now in part three and we're going straight into separation, taking the concentrate to oxides. So who in North America, Jack, can currently provide this service? No one. Okay, Alistair, is um, it true? No well, one? MP Materials has a plant installed in Mountain Pass, but it never really got into production. And since uh, Molly Corp went bankrupt, that uh, plant has not been running. Other than that, uh, there's mothballed facility in Texas, and that's about it. Okay. There are a number of companies looking at novel techniques in North America okay. and around the world. So we've just, just discovered one of the first problems in the supply chain model. Uh, we're going to need uh, someone who's doing separation. So I just want to back you up though one more step. Can you explain why we need this process? Jack, do you want to take a run at this first? Well, we don't. The, what happens when you extract the rare earths from an ore is you get a mixture of rare earths and, and other things that were in the ore that come out in the extract extracting which is usually an acid so the first thing you have to do is is make a pregnant leach solution and what that means is that you you put the uh, minerals the metal values in the minerals into solution then you you separate out those things which are not rare earths or rare earths which you don't really want for, for example cerium and then that solution which is normally today a, chloride, a hydro, hydrochloric acid extract, uh, goes into a separation system, which uh, tr in the U.S. has only ever been uh, solvent extraction for the light rare earths. And of course, Alistair, I'm sure you want to add a few notes on this. Um, yeah, Jack is right. Uh, the traditional method is uh, using a hydrochloric acid. There is, as I said uh, earlier, other companies looking at novel ways so that you can try and find a more environmentally friendly process uh, to tackle this and compete with the Chinese. You know, the benchmark uh, is the Chinese uh, separation cost, which is about $2.50 to $3 a kilogram. Okay, so let's then jump into the fourth level stage in the supply chain, which is metallization. The oxides through chemical processing are then turned into metals. Is that correct? Do I have that correct, Alistair? Yes. And for, which, the, mag, for the magnet industry applications, yes. Okay, well, we're talking about the four, the four magnet materials presently. So do you want to start with this, Alistair, and explain who in North America provides this service? Uh, there is a plant in Tolleson, Arizona that used to belong to Molly Corp, and I think prior to that, Jack would know, but I think it was uh, Japanese Shinetsu joint venture. Yeah, it has, yeah, it, uh, Santoko, pardon me. It has the capability of doing it, but the last information I got was that there is uh, no production of rare earth metals at that facility right now. So outside of that, uh, really, there is all of that capability has been lost in the U.S. Okay, so this is a problem in the chain too, or Jack, can you correct Alistair's uh, understanding? 
there there is no metal making capability or capacity in the United States at this point, or or in Canada as far as I know. Is it not my understanding, however, that uh, Linus is coming here with Blue Line to set up such a facility? That's not my my understanding. Is that Linus has said they're going to pr uh, build a separation facility in Texas? I didn't hear a word about metals. I would agree. Yeah, it's totally solely focused on the separation of everything from samarium on to lutetium. Okay, so um, we're going to get back to that because we want our audience to understand where that is in the food chain. So then mm -hmm. number five we have uh, the when we're actually turn the metals into alloys. Would you like to explain what that is, Jack? Yes, the, the, the rare earth metals by themselves uh, are not made into magnets. The, the, what, what was discovered was that certain alloys of rare earths, neodymium, iron, and boron, samarium, and cobalt, for example, the most common, uh, are, form the strongest magnets known for their weight and size. Now, the problem is these alloys are air sensitive. So you can't just uh, make big blocks of them and sit them in a warehouse and wait for something to happen. So the way it's done and, and they're also not so easy to hold together. The way it's done is they are made in furnaces called spin cast furnaces. And literally the metal is agitated and, and cast out to, to uh, solidify as fast as possible. And that's cast out as a stream, a ribbon, so to speak. Then those, those alloys are decrepitated. That means they're put into hydrogen where they disintegrate into literally atomic sized particles, which are chemical hydrides, they're air stable. Then those materials uh, are put into form, they're used in a powder metallurgical operation. You, you put them into a die and you press them under heat and they center together and they give up the hydrogen. At the same time that die is in an inert atmosphere of nitrogen. Then you coat the, the material with nickel so that the air can't get at it because it's still air sensitive. Then you magnetize it. So remember, none of these things are magnetic until the alloy is formed. They're, they're magnetized after it's formed. Otherwise, you couldn't make them because, as I recall, a friend of mine was in charge of building a 10-ton neodymium iron boron magnet uh, in, in, in the U.S. a few years ago. And I said, how'd you do? He said, it was really a bear because they had to assemble it in sections, send it to the end user site, and magnetize it on site. Because if they'd ever made a magnet, a neodymium boron magnet that big, it would of course attach itself to the rail car and never, and the car wouldn't move because the, the magnet would have been locking it to the rails. So it's not so easy to do this stuff. There's a lot of in, industrial. I was going to say trickery, industrial uh, skill in, in this. And people aren't telling each other how they make these magnets. There's lots and lots of variations on the magnets. Uh, for example, neodymium iron boron magnets are alloyed with dysprosium and terbium to give them other properties. But how people do that is usually their own business. And so this is not something you can do out of a book. I just want to make a point here. The United States Department of Defense thinks you can take a book off a shelf and simply recreate a rare permanent magnet industry. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
Okay, Alistair, I am absolutely certain you have some thoughts on this matter. Yeah, uh, well, Jack, I think, has covered it extremely well. There is a small niche market uh, that we haven't talked about, and that's samarium cobalt, which Jack raised. And there is actually production in the U.S. of samarium cobalt magnets, but it's a, a, a very, very small percentage of the total rare earth magnet space. Those tend to go into more high temperature applications and some military applications. But uh, when it comes to neodymium iron boron, all of that knowledge basically left with Magna Quench when they went to uh, China. Of course, we still have to get on. We still have to get to the point about how these alloys are turned to magnets. So on this note, I'd like to thank you both. Thank you, Alistair, and thank you, Jack. You're welcome. You're welcome.